Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the pastor here, and um, it's a joy to be in God's house with God's people, opening up God's word together. Um, we have been studying, actually we have studied, after today it will be past tense, uh, the Apostles' Creed this summer. That ancient confession, that ancient creed that we just confessed together um, has been a historic confession of the biblical faith, of biblical theology for millennia. Since the church's inception, since the church has existed, um, the, this document has been what has expressed the tenets of what the biblical church believes. If you are a Christian and you believe in the Bible, which we do here, then what we just confess to believe are kind of the core tenets of our faith. And it's true for all of biblical Christianity. This is a Presbyterian church. This is not Presbyterian theology, per se, that we just confessed. This is Catholic theology. This is Episcopalian theology. This is Baptist theology. This is non-denominational theology. If you are a Christian that believes in the sacredness of Scripture, what we just confessed is the expression of the tenets of the Christian faith according to the Bible. And so we love this document because it kind of keeps the rails on our theology. It kind of um, confesses for the, for the known world, what does the church believe in all of its forms? We just confess to believe it as well. And so we've been walking through this document, this confession, all summer. And so if you haven't been with us uh, this summer, how dare you? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, welcome to First Time Visitors. Uh, but we, uh, we've been confessing it uh, each week and kind of walking through it, and uh, we wrap it up this week. Uh, and then this fall, we will study the book of Acts together, which I'm excited about. But we are closing out our study on the Apostles' Creed. Here's what we've looked at so far. Allie, will you throw this up there? I'm just going to reread it for you. We've talked about each chunk of this all summer. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. And now to bring it all home, <clears throat> I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So today, we're actually gonna skip over I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Not that it's not vital, but I hope if you've been here, you know we believe in that. Um, we've talked about that, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins many, many times. Today, we are talking about those last two lines. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The end of the creed deals with the end of the world. And normally when we envision heaven, we envision ourselves with the angels dancing on clouds and playing harps and white robes. And honestly, that sounds a lot more like hell to me. <laughs> and that's actually not the biblical image. That's actually not the biblical teaching on the end of the world. When we think about the future, when we think about the culmination of the end of the world, we envision a rapture. We envision God vaping his people like a mist off the world's uh, soil before he burns the earth to the ground. We believe that. That's what the church has come to believe, and it's certainly what those outside the church think the, the church believes. 
It's hard to detangle what we have grown up hearing. It's hard to detangle the images that some of our VBS gave us. It's hard to detangle what we think we already believe about heaven and about the end of all things. But Christianity for millennia, Christianity since the creed, since this creed was written in the first century, Christianity for millennia has believed something entirely different. That yes, for believers, we believe that heaven is a place for life after death. We believe that if you depart from the body, you go to be with the Lord today. That if you were to pass away or loved ones that have passed away, they are with the Lord right now in spirit. But that is just little piece. Heaven is this intermediate state. Heaven is a pit stop. Heaven is a bus stop. Heaven is not the end of the world. The Christian believes that yes, heaven is for life after death. But what the Bible talks about, the hope of the Christian, what the Bible is concerned with is life after life after death. It should be required reading for everyone who claims to be a Christian to read N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. And I've borrowed so much from him for today's sermon. But life after, life after death for the Christian is the hope of a remade world. This intermediate state that life after death for the Christian is heaven, the Bible talks very little about that about what life is like after you die, but before Jesus returns. The Bible talks a lot about what life will be like when Jesus returns. It talks very little about this intermediate state called heaven. It's a glorious place because Jesus is there, but we don't know a whole lot about it because the Bible doesn't speak about it. What the Bible's concerned with is life after life after death, which is the hope of a remade world. That's why the creed tries to sum it up this way. That's why the creed tries to capture it with these two summary statements for the promised future of the people of God and for the whole created order. And it does so with these two statements. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. One New Testament scholar that I read this week said that the Bible's teaching on the hope of the world, this, this idea that we're gonna talk about today, is the New Testament's best kept secret. Now it's not meant to be a secret, it's meant for everyone to know it, but it's been misunderstood and been lost for a very long time. So let's dive in together. And I know it's gonna be hard to kind of reimagine what you have grown up thinking about the hope of the Christian is, but I hope through these biblical texts and through our confession that we can hope and imagine the, the, the future of God's people together. So we're gonna look at two passages, two pillar passages on this topic. First comes from Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25, and then we'll be at the end of the Bible to talk about the end of all things in Revelation 21. So Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18, says this. This is Paul talking to the church at Rome and really the church in the whole Mediterranean at this point. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then skipping to the end, the revelation, this vision of the apostle John on the island of Patmos. We got a vision of the end of all things. Revelation 21, this infamous passage starting in verse one says this. This is John's vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay, so a lot a lot, there's a lot here. We're not gonna cover um, the entire hope of the new heavens and new earth in one Sunday. But these are two of the pillar passages in the New Testament that speak about the future world that God is making in the future world that is the hope of what's to come. There are dozens of passages in the New Testament. These are pretty power packed. There's a lot in here, but I hope they begin to give us a sense of what we could be uh, imagining as we await the end of all things. So what does it all mean? Okay, when our creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, it's telling you that's a summary attempt to try to get you to believe what Romans 8 just said is true. And one of the things that Romans 8 just told you, Allie, will you throw verse 23? We're gonna look at the second half of Romans 8, 23. 23b says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? Well, we tend to think that what that means is that one day you'll be ripped and you're gonna look like the best version of yourself. Your body's gonna look heavenly, if you will. And you're gonna, you're gonna like look like you do CrossFit, which you need to stop if you do, okay? No one likes you if you do, okay? But... <laughs> We tend to think that when we, oh, the resurrection of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies, I'm gonna get a new body, I'm gonna be jacked. I'm gonna look like the best version of myself, you know, pre-kids and pre-dad bod. Like we're gonna, we're gonna get back to our like teenage self when we had time to work out. Like that's what, that's what the hope is, right? That's not it at all. That's not it at all, that you would look great one day. That's not the hope of the world so why, why, would the, why would the creed confess to everybody? Why would the creed say that if you believe in biblical Christianity, you know what you believe in? You believe in the resurrection of the body. Why is it talking about that? Why is that the hope of the Christian? Do you know what sin has done to your body? Do you know what trauma has done to your body? Much has been written about this. I've read some there's a very famous book called The Body Keeps the Score. There's the anatomy of the soul. There's the logic of the body. I've read a lot about it. But here's the gist. 
You are not just a soul with skin on. You are a whole person. And here's the point of that. Your body, your physical body, carries with it the story of your life. You cannot separate the things you've done and the things that have been done to you from the effect that those things have on your body and your brain. Your body carries with it the scars and the weight of the shameful things you've done and the shameful things that have been done to you. You bear the marks of what sin has done to you and others bear the marks of what your sin has done to them. You carry it, your soul carries it, your body carries it. And your mortal body is full of the pain and the scars and the years of the loss and the dashed hopes and the sin that you've committed and what sin has done to you. You carry that with you in your body and in your brain. You cannot separate it. And the Bible into that place because the Bible knows you, because the Bible knows who made you and knows how you are wired together, the Bible into that place says you are waiting on the redemption of your body. Your body will be restored. Your body will be healed. Your body will be glorious. This is such an undertaught, underrealized piece of our hope and of our theology because this is what the Bible says about our future. If your body has been redeemed, if your, if your body is going to be resurrected, if you will one day get a resurrected body, it means not are you gonna have a six pack one day, it means not just has your body been restored, it means that all of your shame and all of your trauma and all of your scars will be healed too one day. That's what it means. You will be restored you will be glorious. You will be, like Ephesians 5 says, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. You will be radiant one day in body and in soul. And here's what's even more crazy. And the, and the Bible says this so boldly, and it's, it's scary to say out loud because of how it can be received and how you might think the Bible's being flippant about your pain and about your scars and about your loss. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible actually says, somehow, because of your scars, because of the loss and because of the pain and because of what sin has done to you, somehow the glory of your resurrected body will be more glorious because of the scars. Your future glory will somehow be more radiant, more beautiful than if the scars had never existed. There's an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi. I'm a professional. Uh, no, I've read about it. Uh, and you should watch it online. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. But this art form takes pieces of broken pottery and it mends it together with lacquer and with gold. And so that the finished project actually highlights the fractures and the breaking, but it's highlighted with gold. And it's beautiful and it shines and it glimmers and it's glorious looking. And the new piece of pottery, because it's been mended together at all the fractures, the new piece of pottery, the new piece of art is actually more valuable than the original. Even if the original was very valuable. The new piece, the restored piece, the remade piece, where the scars and the fractures and the brokenness has actually been highlighted is actually more radiant, more beautiful, more valuable. 
It's more valuable and more beautiful because of the glorious healing that it has undergone. That's what your future will be like. And all the things done to you in the darkness of the night will be healed by the dawn of a new day. All the pain and all the shame that you have made your identity, not only will they be washed away, but your lowly body, your mortal body will be mended, repaired, and remade into a glorious state and you will be completely healed. That's the hope of a bodily resurrection. It's not that you're gonna look great one day, it's that you will be radiant and all of your scars and all of your shame will be healed and your scars and your shame will actually be transformed into glory and your new self, your redeemed self will be more glorious because of the scars, because of the power of the glory of the healing that King Jesus will bring. I believe in the resurrection of the body, but we don't just believe in the resurrection of the body. The body, when we confess that in our creed, when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we're also saying that because the body is a part of this material world, that the, the body's just this microcosm for that all the material world will be resurrected and redeemed. Look at Romans eight again with me. We're, I'm gonna read a few verses, Allie. I'm gonna skip around, so hot fingers. Verse 19 says this, says for the creation, the creation, the world, the created order, the material world, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, skip over. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, here's the punch. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Does that sound like Jesus rapturing and vaping all of his people up into this um, ethereal place called heaven and then burning the world to the ground? No. Jesus made the world and cares deeply about the world, the material world. He does not plan on destroying it, but renewing it. We don't believe the world will be burned up. We believe the world will be remade. We don't believe the world will be destroyed. We believe the whole created world will be resurrected. Do you know that flowers weren't meant to die? Do you know that one day trees will clap their hands? Do you know that wolves were meant to lie down with lambs? And there was meant to be harmony in the whole created order. And the day is coming when creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. How will that happen and what will it be like? That's what Revelation 21 is trying to tell you. It's trying to give you an image for what that will be like. When the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth in full and the king of that kingdom, Jesus, returns, here's what will be the new reality of the resurrected world. We will live for eternity, not as disembodied spirits floating around like leaves caught in a wind, but we will live in glorified human bodies enjoying God's new creation. That's the hope of life after, life after death. That at the end of time, Jesus is returning and he's bringing all of heaven's joy with him to earth. That's what Revelation 21 told you. This is what it wants you to know about the future of God's world and the future of God's kingdom when the kingdom of heaven fully comes to earth. Here's what it will be like. There will be no more sorrow 
We just sang it. That was the, close, the closing refrain of our, of our song right before that we started preaching was one day he will free us from all our sin and sorrow. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. Let me extrapolate this out for you. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more pain. There will be no more abandonment. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more racism. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more sin. And most importantly, there will be no more death. 1 Corinthians 15, death will be the last enemy that Jesus finally defeats. And we will live in a world where death is not a threat anymore. Not just bodily death, but death of relationships and death of joy and death and decay in all of its forms. Death and all of his friends will be delivered their final death blow. In many other passages that the New Testament speaks about, the hope of things to come. It talks about Jesus returning and it says, and a trumpet will sound and the procession will begin. And it's not meant, I mean, there may be an actual trumpet. I don't know, I haven't, I haven't experienced it yet. But it's meant to be a poetic analogy. It's meant to let the reader know if you were a first century reader and you heard that, you heard, wait, wait, wait. A king is returning and a trumpet is sounding. Wait, wait, wait. I know exactly what the New Testament is talking about now. Because here's what would happen in the first century. A king would go off to war with their army and with, with all the people that were going to fight the war. And when they would return for miles and miles and miles outside of the city that they were returning to, like for hundreds of miles, the trumpet would begin to blast. And anytime you heard the trumpet and saw the procession, you knew that king is coming back in victory. And now I can join that procession as this king is making his way back to the city and we will live and dance in the shalom and the peace and the, and the news that our enemy has been defeated and we will be safe at peace in our homeland again. And so when the New Testament says that King Jesus is returning with a trumpet sound, it's saying, do you know he's coming back in victory? And you get to join that procession as he's bringing his kingdom to the home city, which is the world. He's bringing the victory that he just won. He's bringing the victory that he has accomplished. The trumpet will sound and there will be a great procession. Victorious King Jesus is returning. And a victorious King Jesus means he gets the final say on how the story of the world ends, not death. Death will be delivered its final death blow. And there will be no more threat of war. Which means, here's what that means. It's, a, it's, a, it's marvelous to ponder, you know, what would that be like and use your redeemed imagination to imagine what that could be like. But here's the point of it. Here's why it's meant to be your hope, Christian, is that here, if, if Jesus is returning in victory and King Jesus is bringing all of heaven's joy with him to earth, that means that all the pain that you are in now, which is very real, and all the sorrow that you are in now, which is very real, and the anguish and the grief and the loss, which is all very real. Here's what the hope of King Jesus returning in victory means for you and your pain and your sorrow. It means that all of that has an expiration day. See, because our grief and our loss and our sorrow and our trauma loves to tell us a story. It loves to write us a narrative. It loves to tell us how things are and how things will always be. Your grief right now is telling you that it will always be like this. Your sorrow right now is telling you that you will suffocate under the weight of it. Your grief and your sorrow and your trauma is telling you that death has won. 
And the Bible looks at you and says, not only does death not win at the end, but the victorious Jesus is coming back and he's bringing all of heaven's joy with him and you will be a part of that victorious procession. If you're a member of his kingdom, if you belong to him, you will be caught up in the procession that is the returning King Jesus to bring joy, the joy of heaven with him to earth. Jesus will have the final say on how this world ends, not death. Whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever loss you've experienced, whatever suffering, whatever valley you were in, the Bible tells you that it is temporary. And the Bible promises that it's temporary because one day it will be over. And it wants you, this is what Paul is doing for us, it wants you to apply the hope of the certainty of Jesus' victory to your present pain your present illness, your present suffering, your present ache. And this is not meant to be theoretical escapism. This is not meant to be like meditative nirvana for you. This is meant to actually meet you in the real places where there is real pain and real loss and real sorrow. Look at what he says in verse 18. This is Paul being so bold, but he's trying to heal them. Look at what he says to them. For I consider that the sufferings, which he knew a lot of, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That word right there, that Greek word, when he says not worth comparing, we think of comparing like I compare myself on Instagram to people that are cooler than me. That's not what he's talking about. That word comparing means literally bringing up the other beams of the scales, like balancing the scales of the weight and measurements. That's how they would do business in those days. And when he says, your present pain is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, here's what he's saying. If on one side of the scales is your suffering and your loss and your sorrow and your sin and your ache, and on the other side of the scales is the glory of the resurrection of the redeemed world and the new world that God is making one day, if those are on the two sides of the scales, he says, if you compare them, if you're like letting them see how they balance out, the suffering side won't budge the glory. It won't move it. It's not heavy enough. It doesn't have enough sustenance in it to move the glory that awaits you. Paul is not diminishing the pain of the reader. He is not saying to them, hey, your suffering's not that bad. It's not that bad, just get over it. That's not what he's saying. He knows he knows that suffering is real. He knows that sorrow and loss are real. What he's saying is, he's not saying, hey, it's not that bad. He's saying, it's this good. You have no idea how good it's gonna be. And when you compare them, if you try to balance them out, it won't budget, it won't move it because this is so heavy and this is so real. When you put your suffering on the scales against your future glory that awaits you, it won't move the scales. Do you know though, what if you put your suffering on the scales, do you know what your suffering would move? Like if you put it on the, on the scales with something else, you know what it would move? This theology of harps and clouds. You put your suffering on that scales, it would, it would win. The theology of harps and clouds and I guess I gotta be excited about playing my harp all day with angels and singing songs all day. I guess that sounds better than hell but I'm really suffering right now and that, is, that seems to actually not really meet me in the pain of what I'm going through. If your future is disembodied living for all eternity, singing songs all day, your suffering would move those scales. Your suffering would win. 
Your suffering would move that. Your suffering would topple that. Heard a story this week about a pastor, and when he was a younger pastor, was meeting with an artist, a musician, and he was, she was in a season of despair and depression, and he was trying to give her hope against her despair, and, but in his, in his youthfulness of his, pastor, of his pastorate career, he kind of gave her like, don't you know that one day like heaven will be, we'll, we'll be up and we'll, we'll kind of, we'll do the thing, whatever the thing is, like we'll, we'll be, all this will be over one day. And this is what the artist said to him. I hear about your hope and I say to you, I'll take my despair because my despair is more real than the hope you're talking about. And later that month, she committed suicide. And it was that point where the pastor said, there's gotta be a more real hope than the despair that the people are, are experiencing. There's gotta be something more real than the despair and the anguish that they're feeling. And he went on a journey to discover what is the hope of the Christian? And does it move the scales of people's despair and suffering? If your future glory is real, if your future glory is the resurrection of the body and the return of King Jesus and life everlasting, your present suffering won't budge the scales. Your present suffering won't compare to it. Which is why Paul, at the end of the Romans 8 section that we read, says this, verse 24 and 25. He uses this really power-packed biblical word. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Christian community, the people of the kingdom, is to be the community that lives and breathes and embodies hope. Christians should be the least sentimental people in the whole world. Christianity is not sentimentality. Christians should never be denying their own pain, should never be trying to put band-aids on suffering. Christians should never be denying that the world is painful and the world is hard and the world is full of sorrow. Christians should never be afraid, though, of getting very near and very empathetically involved with the suffering and the pain of the world. Why? Because you and only you have a hope that can hold the suffering and not be budged by it doesn't diminish the suffering. It doesn't mean the suffering is not real. It's not saying the suffering is not that bad. It's saying, yeah, but let me tell you how good it will be. So Midtown, after a summer of studying the Apostles' Creed, here's what the Apostles' Creed is meant to birth in you. Hope. We are to be a people who wait in our suffering. We wait for the glory with hope. We don't grieve as the world grieves. We grieve, we grieve with hope, 1 Thessalonians says. We don't deny the world's pain. We don't deny our pain. But we know that our pain cannot budge the glory that awaits us. We just don't have it yet. We don't have the ending of the aching. We don't have the ending of the sorrow yet. But we have been born into this hope, 1 Peter says. We have been born into a living hope. And so Midtown 12 South, that is what you are able to give the world that nothing else can give them. 
hope. Hope that is a match for the despair that they feel. Hope that is a match, a, a better match for the despair that you feel. Because I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, um, at the end of this series, at the end of our time studying um, what the church has always believed, we confess at the end of our time, we believe in the resurrection of the body and we believe in the life everlasting. Would you, would you birth hope in us? Would you give us the ability as we look at our sorrow and our despair and our loss and what that has done to our body, what that has done to our world, to dare to hope that it is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Make us a people who dare to hope, Jesus, and dare to wait while we hope on the promise of the glory that's coming. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.